You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Michael Rainier studied as an archaeologist and worked at the British Museum and the University of Leicester before moving into university administration. His new collection of novellas is Five Degrees of Latitude. Thank you for joining me, Michael. You're welcome. Thank you for asking me. Michael, this is a remarkable collection, and I'd like you to just tell me a little bit as you're about your background as an archaeologist, which clearly shows its mark in this book. And uh, Talk about, too, about your literary leanings, where, what you read when you first started uh, reading. Well, uh, I f- first started reading um, adventure stories, I think, like every kid um, around about the, the age of, I guess, sort of like the, the ones I can remember are around about the ages of 10 or 11 or something. So I w- wasn't an early starter by any means. But I used to read uh, Tarzan and, and uh, Treasure Island and those kinds of books, which I find uh, have always found you know fascinating and enjoyable to read, just to lose yourself in, in those pages for several hours. The archaeology side of it just came by accident. I lived on a hill of chalk, which has flint in it. And so uh, digging in the garden, we would come across flint all the time. And uh, I became interested in, in that. And one thing led to another, and I became uh, interested in flint tools, stone Stone Age flint tools, and um, went on excavations and stuff at the local society, and you know eventually decided to study that at university, and and was fortunate enough to study under one of the, the preeminent lithics experts, uh, lithics, the stone the study of stone tools, who um, imbued his passion with me, and I went on then to 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 go on and study that as as a as a doctoral thesis and then was lucky enough to teach it for a few years but the the writing and the archaeology were separate strands in in my life uh, they they didn't sort of cross over to any real extent i know there's a quite a big literature around archaeologists you know discovering things but i i didn't really read any of that um i was really a very hard-nosed academic archaeologist i read you know dry academic texts uh, on on stone tools which i found interesting so there you you know go figure and I guess I read outside of that, I've always been interested in these kind of adventure stories for escape from that very kind of dry academic sort of background that I was working in. So I didn't read a huge amount, I have to say, um, of for, for pleasure, because when you're studying a, a subject to that degree at that level, you don't really read anything other than that you know if you're reading anything else you know there's questions why are you reading something that's not to do with your work so I have to say I went through a very long period when I was doing my research where I read for pleasure almost not at all and and everything was to do with reports about stone age uh, lithic scatters and and stuff so almost uh, I came back to reading really when I left academic archaeology Mm. and found myself with with time on my hands and I had a, a brief quite a brief interlude when before I uh, had children where I had you know large amounts of time and and began reading again novels but very early very very quickly um, we had children and and I started thinking about them and and their future quite quite early on and 
decided to go back and read some of the stories that I'd read as a child to see if they were going to be appropriate and start collecting them because for some reason they'd, they'd gone in, you know, moves to houses and student accommodation. They'd frittered away. So I started buying them again. I love secondhand books. So I started buying, you know, nice tatty pre-owned copies of Treasure Island or Frankenstein or the Tarzan books, uh, Peter Pan, anything that my children would be likely to read. And I started reading them just to check that they're okay and finding that they were fascinating, not at all how they've been portrayed in the movies and the popular conception of these stories. They have nuances that just haven't made it to the screen. So I became really interested in that. So this is a very long-winded answer to say that I don't have a great legacy of, of literature in my background. I, I, ha I read a little bit when I was at school as a child. I then had this long break where I read, but not for pleasure. And then I came back to it. So if there's anything about that, it may be that I have the exuberance of somebody rediscovering something from childhood again and finding that that was really great and, and still having all the enthusiasm for it. You can still see, though, the influence of your academic work in your in your writing. It's it's clearly there, but you've turned it into an adventure, which I think is very clever. And we'll talk about that. Talk about when you dis first decided to start writing fiction on your own. What made you take that that path? You're you're working presumably as a university administrator. You've got kids. What when did you sit down in front of a computer? I guess and start writing. I've always wanted to write mm. from before being an archaeologist, tried to write little stories and stuff in the back of notebooks and stuff and was always uh, singularly unsuccessful in, in achieving what I wanted to achieve. When I started reading again for pleasure, uh, I began to, I, I must have brought with it a certain criticism for the written word that you have when you when you uh, study um, academically for a long time, where every single word has a meaning uh, uh, and there can be no ambiguity about it. And I began to a, enjoy the freedom of that in the little bits of writing that I was doing, that I no longer had to, to be so specific about things. Things, In fact, it would be better if there was ambiguity in what I was writing because that would allow the reader to... But that's an absolute, uh, you know, forbidden in academic uh, <laughs> writing. You have to be precise. So I began, you know, reading um, these books books uh, and looking at their structure just out of habit out of out of an intellectual habit looking at the words used why was that word used not another word and beginning to think I could do this I, I think I, I have this I had loads of ideas I've always had loads of ideas I'm one of these people who constantly think that would make a great book that would make a great story uh, and I would write the title in my head it was always very important to have a good title and probably the first couple of paragraphs and then everything would kind of peter out and I'd go on to something else. The real thing that changed for me, I had two children, I had not a lot of time, but I was living 50 miles, I am still living 50 miles north of London, and, but working in London. And so I found myself with a commute, a 40-minute train commute. And I'm not very good at sitting still in that in that sense. And so I thought, well, this is a, an opportunity for me to start to to write. And I got given um, a BlackBerry and I discovered that on BlackBerry, there's a little uh, uh, application, I suppose you call it, called Notes, which allows you to write in freehand about 1,400 words. And then that, it fills up and you have to open another, another file. 
And so one day, uh, I can tell you precisely when it was, I'd been to the States over Christmas and I'd been thinking about writing and I really must do it. And I got back to work in January, cold January day, got onto the train, found my seat and I took out this BlackBerry and I, I began to start typing into the BlackBerry. I had no idea at that time what I was going to write, but what I was, it turned out what I was writing was, was Sikatan, which is one of the stories. And I was just blown away because it just came out I was expecting the usual bit it to stop um, um, but it, it didn't it just kept one word kept coming out after the other and these files kept filling up and I had I was opening a new one so very quickly again I've always found it's very interesting how your background keeps up. I was a typologist as an archaeologist so I I would classify things in, in, and I would develop these intense coding systems to classify these different types of stone tools. Soon I discovered that that was now handy in classifying my chapters because I only had 1,500 words and then these files would close up. But I often hadn't finished the chapter, so I would have to come up with a structure. So I now have a very, com well, not a complicated structure, but a, a numbering system so that the chapters are all in kept together and they're A, B, point one, two, three, so that that's a... Uh, and it just and I just it just came out and I finished that story in 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 um, so I would do 40 minutes on the way down and then I would go to work and forget about it. And then I would I have a, a 15 minute walk from my office back to the railway station and I would try and remember what I'd written in the morning. And then I would think a bit more about it and then I get on the train and reread the bit and then just start writing again on the train back. So 18 minutes a day took me uh, two months exactly to to write that whole story and I did it you know more or less un, you know unchanged just came out uh, as it was very very lucky very fortunate that it was that that one because the others you know I found much harder but that one seemed to be ready made in in my brain and it just came out so written in, on a blackberry while you're commuting yeah, I, I <laughs> have to say one, <laughs> one essential uh, piece of technology here is a really good set of uh, headphones so that you can block out the sound because that does that that does in, interrupt uh, and interfere. But then I discovered that even that has a bonus because then I could put on uh, the music that was appropriate for where I was in the story. So if it's a kind of a mystery bit and there's fog rolling in, I'll play something that you know reminds me of that. Well, what were you listening to while you wrote Seek a Tarn? I think there was a there was a lot of Sibelius in there. I think, <laughs> uh, I and some ski so. and that kind of stuff. I mean, I I cut around a lot of it. A lot of actually very interesting stuff was was film music, which I'm not. I mean, I love classical music, um, but there there are a couple of there was a film called The Village, um, and it has a wonderful soundtrack, a violin soundtrack, and I use that an awful lot of the time. Uh, Arvo Part is writes some very mysterious music that that just is perfect for for the way I write, and I guess I write um, episodically. I'm forced to do that because of the BlackBerry and the the time thing, but uh, that lends itself to sort of a cine quasi cinematographic kind of way of thinking. So the music, having the music there, is like the soundtrack for me, and it, it's very very helpful. Boy, that's just such a remarkable story, <laughs> Michael. This is fantastic. Now, uh, let's talk just a little bit about Sikatarn. That's your very first story. How much had you thought about this? And one of the things I think you do incredibly well is create places in a somewhat academic manner. I can really see the academic aspect. 
it creeps through in this very creative way. So I'd like you to talk about creating the places you, you write about. Do you visit places like this or do they just arise in your head? Do you map them out in your mind or does this all flow out, come out in the prose? They are all based on areas that exist, places that exist, but they're um, twisted and contorted in my mind to fulfill the purposes of the story. So Sikatan is, is, there's no, I don't think it's a particular secret, it's, it's uh, part of the west coast of Scotland, is based, it's based on, but there is no place like that, it doesn't exist, if you look on a map you won't, you won't find it. I tried, and that's <laughs> one thing I have to say, your writing is so convincing. For the first two stories, I would find myself trying to look up these places, and you got, I'd have a general idea where they were, and I'm thinking, well, wait, 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 is, oh, no, wait, this is all, I, it would seem, it's all made up, and I'm just thinking, boy, that's some convincing writing. <laughs> yeah, so, and I have to say, I don't, there's no um, grand plan in there, it's just because um, it's, again, come back to being an academic. If you have a hunch about something, you can't just write that down. You have to go away and you have to find the literature. You have to read the literature. You have to go and talk to people about it. Then you have to go and look at the material. And then you think, yeah, okay, I was right. Well, no, I was wrong. To me, I'm like a kid in a sweet shop where I get the idea of oh no, I don't have to um, go and look that up and see whether there is an island there or there is a mountain there. I'll just put one there. And to me, that is that I'm just like a child. I just find that so wonderful that I can just solve that problem and not have to uh, go to the British Library and look something up. So it's really, it's it's needs driven. Um, I am, and you, you you made the point that they, they have a lot of references to, to the the uh, to, to things that are real and that that's true and um what i tried to do is make these these landscapes as realistic as possible and in my world those little bits of realism come from things like you know what kind of rock it's built on and uh, what what the weather may do peculiarities of the weather in terms of mist and 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 stuff what the flora and the fauna were like so i'm i am consciously trying to uh, lead people into these little imaginary worlds by giving them little nuggets of truth. So everybody knows what a deer looks like. Everybody knows what a what a rut might might be like. So we'll we'll drop that in into a into a place that doesn't actually exist. And then I've kind of moved people, you know, surreptitiously towards believing something that is that is not believable in, in the real world. One of the things I think that is remarkable in in all of your stories are the levels of storytelling. You have a really unique uh, method of wrapping stories in stories and stories and, pers and perspectives within perspectives. And there's a kind of ambiguity sometimes when we're reading, we get so many levels in, you're kind of thinking, well, wait, 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 okay, this is who's talking now. And, and sometimes you use that to great effect when, when there's a kind of a reveal. And I'm thinking in the first story, there's a reveal that just knocked me on my socks. Um, so talk about your sense of telling a story because Sikatarn is, I think, uh, probably the most straightforward of the stories in this book. But I, I still think that, you know, there's, again, there's, you take us someplace, we hear tales, we tell tales, we look up legends. It's just really it seems intricately architected. You're right. Uh, it it wasn't really intentional. I, I have one very, very simple uh, golden rule, and it comes from, um, I like 
like many people was 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 brought up in a um a religious household and we would have to go to church um in fact i was at a boarding school so church at, at, run by monks uh, a monastic school so we spent a lot of time in church and um i i realized that um i would try to be a good uh, listener and listen to these sermons and i just couldn't we would get to the end of the sermon and i would like i i heard the beginning bit what happened i just it, it had gone and there was one guy who, one priest who, who I, I did listen to. And it, the reason was, I realized very quickly, is that he would start talking about whatever he wanted to talk about. And then he'd inject a story into it. And you'd, 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 you'd latch onto the story for a minute or two. And if the story was too long, you'd then slip back into kind of dream world and wondering what you were going to do when you could get out of this place. But then he would start another story and then you'd come back and you would remember. And if you'd asked me afterwards you, uh, what, the, what he was talking about, what the sermon was about, I had no idea. But I knew that there were three stories and I could tell you the stories. And so I have this, this founding principle, which is you build a story within a story and you keep people interested because everybody is interested in the beginning of a story where what the real trick is, and I don't claim to have it uh, at all, but there are many, many writers who do, is to keep people interested and not having to continually start new stories. I'm not that good a writer, so uh, for me, I'm continually starting new stories to, to keep uh, people interested. And, and part of it is uh, also, again, uh, the way they're written, because they are so episodic in my life, you know, I, I 40 minutes and then I go to work and I'm dealing with all sorts of other stuff. I'm not thinking about writing at all. And then I come back again. Uh, my thread is constantly being broken. And very, it's very easy when you write in that way to come back and thought, oh, I, I can't really remember where I was going with that. So, uh, I, but, uh, you know, I'm liking, I'm liking the look of this. So I, I, it would, I think it would be good if this happened next. And so you go off on another thing. So in, in partly that, that that's great because it injects fresh, uh, freshness to the writing, I think, and, and a new story. But it has very serious uh, drawbacks, which, which I think come out in some of the other ones because they become, there's too many, they, you can get too many layers. So for me, it's all about trying to find the right number of, of levels. But it's, it's not a, a deliberate thing other than that, I think people love the beginning of a story. Everybody, you know, you, you say, I'm, I'm now I'm going to tell you a story. Everybody listens, no matter what, what age they are, they sit down. What, what, where you may lose them is, is on the nature of the story. So I try not to do that. You know, um, so you're still writing on a Blackberry. Yeah, yeah. I've just finished. I'm very close to completing a, a, a novel format in the, in the Blackberry. Wow. Well, we'll have to ask about that later. Now, I want to get back to Sikatarn because one of the things that strikes me about all of your stories is they have a really solid emotional core. And, and this one is no exception. And, and But you give us like uh, some really great a variety of characters and your approach is, I think, what's nice about your approach is you really ground us in the real world and ground us in the emotions of these characters. So talk about creating, you know, and your characters tend to go and experience something. I mean, they, they don't often they see the effects of something that has happened before. And so talk about creating these kind of characters that, you know, keep us really engaged and exploring these worlds that you make that seem so real. I don't claim any great secret to that. The the characters are, in my view, the people who needed to be there to to carry the story to its conclusion. I just wanted to tell 
in Sikatan, a very a very simple story, which actually ironically is well, not, I don't think ironically is the one of the five stories that has some element of truth behind it. So there there is a really? that that happened to simply the fact that that um, well, let me go back. My my when I was young, about ten or eleven, my brother, my older brother went on a trip, was allowed to go on a trip on his own in Scotland and uh, with a friend of his, and they uh, stayed with uh, uh, friends of our family up there, went for a walk, heard this whistling and got pretty scared and, and then came back down. So, and that they retold us that story and as a young uh, child that must have had an effect on me because I've remembered it. Subsequently, I think the same family were struck by a tragedy where a member of their uh, family was was killed in an accident involving the implement that happens in this story. I guess I, I don't want to give it away. So those two bits came together. So I, I did know, I had a very clear idea of what the story was uh, as it unraveled there. Um, so I just needed some characters to make that happen. And in that particular the story, I, I don't know if you've, if you've done a lot of uh, walking or hiking in those kinds of areas, but you invariably find one of two things. You either have a companion that you get along with extremely well and no words need to be said. You, you, you seem to understand where you're going, where you're headed, and you appreciate the same sorts of things that you see in the natural landscape. Or you find yourself with a, a really annoying person who really... <laughs> Uh, at least this is my experience, who, who won't shut up talking about something and, and you just can't enjoy it and you wish they, they weren't there. So for this trip, because that's what it was, I, w I was taking a trip. And if you're trying to get at how to do it, I was uh, taking myself on a trip through this landscape. Don't forget, I haven't seen this landscape before either. So it's new to me. Who would I who would I do that trip with? And um, I, I thought that the, the two characters there were were the most appropriate they have this great relationship uh, mm -hmm. that that is largely unspoken and so if anything i'm the sort of the narrator type person because that's who i am but i know many people who would fit the the role of the the other character very well and so they're, they're not based on anybody in particular but they're based on a on a on a kind of person uh, that that um enjoys uh the landscape for what it is enjoys discovering new things um but does that in a very understated and respectful way which is what i think uh, Jansen Jansen does now uh one of the things that strikes me about this story and all the stories in this book is there i think they verge on novella lane i'm there are long long stories or novellas i'm mm -hmm. not sure where but they all have a very pleasing density when i read any one of these stories i feel pretty much like i've read a novel and I think you get the right level of detail, the right level of plot. We get deep enough into the characters. And I'd like you to talk about choosing that length. Does the, does the length just choose itself? Because I think part of it is necessary because a lot of your writing is about landscape. And just to create those kind of landscapes that are, seem so immersive, you have to give us, put us there for a while. Yes, you're right. When we had children, obviously you... you you lose a lot of time and so I began to read a lot of short stories and I've always always loved short stories and I've always found it quite intimidating to be faced with a big thick 
book, you know, a Harry Potter type book. It just, I just think, oh God, I can't. <laughs> so sh short stories uh, have always been the thing that I've loved. I've loved them. Uh, and I think that it's a very superior art form uh, to, to be able to do that. But I, as somebody who probably craved novels in terms of a longer thing, I was, began to get frustrated that um, these stories were were sort of closing out before before I really wanted them to and I really wanted uh, a, a little bit more from these 4,000 5,000 word stories and I thought to myself gosh and this was conscious gosh wouldn't it wouldn't it be great if you could just eke out this story um, have the same the same type of story, uh, the same the nut, nutshell of the story, but just spread it out a bit and explore some of these things that as a short story writer, I, I guess people have to, um, you know, deliberately cut off those avenues. So we won't talk about the landscape. We won't talk about how people were feeling. We'll move this on very quickly. And I thought, wouldn't it be nice if you could just enjoy that a little bit more, but not to the extent of a, of a novel, because I can't write four or five pages about how somebody's thinking. That's just not, I, I don't have that ability in me. But I, you know, I'd like to know a little bit more about what they're thinking, but not too much. So I, I very deliberately wanted to write a long, short story. How they, they ended up, they're all about, I think, 20,000 words uh, long. So I think a traditional short story is, is considered to be around about 4,000 words. So they, they ended up at that length because that's how long it took me to, to, to finish the story and that thing. And it, it, there is no other, I could, they could have been longer, they could have been shorter. It just seemed that that, that, that length was enough time to take a, a quite a short, simple idea and pull it apart just a little bit. Uh, without getting too uh, heavy um, and come to a nice conclusion and you can read those things if you're slow it takes a week which is nice you know if you've got short reading or you can read them in a in a session a single sitting so I think that's quite a good uh, you know a result the uh, the way they're broken up nicely into these little chapterettes does make it possible to read them like a novel it feels like that now what was the second story you wrote having finished the katarna came out perfectly and did you send it out for publication or did you just put it on your hard drive and no. say i'm a happy guy i um i i showed it to my wife who who read it and um she she liked it she thought it was it, it was really good but i think you know i think if she was here she'd say it was a, it was a bit uh uh long uh nothing kind of happens in it which which i was very proud of i was quite <laughs> proud of the fact that, that that you know there aren't sort of great um, cataclysmic events happening in it it's just two guys walking walking around i then sat down to write and i was trying to think now I, I think it was um the rumor mill was the next one uh, that came out and again it it the reason that was because i i knew exactly what that story was uh, it was an idea i had back at university i remember almost the, the the moment i had it walking off to a lecture thinking that would be a really good story but it's not unique because uh, i have these ideas all the time of, that would be a really good story but I, I just happened to remember this one and it stuck with my mind and i've always said to myself i'd love to i'd love to write that story that would be really good but i i, I wouldn't know how to do that um necessarily but Sika Khan coming as quickly as it did and as easily as it did for me uh, on that one, and I'm, I'm, I'm not being arrogant, it just, it just flew out, and I don't know why, gave me this confidence. I thought, I can do that. I can write that story. So I sat down and, and on the train and started uh, writing that. And um, it, it, again, came pretty, pretty easily in, in, that, in that one. I didn't 
have any real um, obstacles in in that. Um, I knew, I knew that I would have to make up this um, the Siedendorf uh, town and area. Again, I've 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 been once to that part of of Europe, and um, you know I love landscapes, so I I I you know I, I absorb it in. So it was it wasn't difficult to to come up to come up with that. I just had I buy a, a print off a little map of of the area, and I can I can work it out how how things would fit into that that kind of landscape landscape well you fit an entire history i mean (laughs) like a a, what would be like two chapters of european history into this short story it's really remarkable and again it feels so real and i think again here's your academic background coming back you have this way of just tossing this stuff off bang 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 it's really interesting to us as readers just really captivating and then i'm thinking this sounds so real but is it what you know, again, you're running to Wikipedia trying to find these places. They they aren't there. Yeah, I mean, it's um, I had a lot of fun with that. I, I enjoy. It. I mean, of, of of the five, I think the the the, uh, the rumor mill is the one that has uh, you know the more overt humor in it than any of the others. But uh, um, what I've learned, what I've discovered in my writing is that I can't make up anything that hasn't happened. And if you know anything, you know, the historians will tell you that. It's probably happened in Europe, uh, uh, and um, I'm absolutely convinced that I haven't. All I've done is I've stretched the margins a little bit, but but um, that kind of crazy stuff happens. And if you if you've read a little bit of history and and, and um, a little bit of European history in particular, it doesn't have to be European; it could be anywhere. Um, the, the the most extraordinary things actually turn out to have happened, and and I find that constantly with the, with the story. So what I think. Um, what I'm lucky in in having is is the the ability to just make um, drop in a few facts that would would be uh, the anchor points of any, any any true account, and then you weave in the bits in between. And um, if you those anchor points are fairly well grounded, you can make a pretty plausible thing. And the only disappointment is when you when you pick up a newspaper and suddenly discover that's. That, that that really did happen. That, that, um, so yeah, I, I I had a I had fun with that. I enjoyed I enjoyed that. And there's a little bit of uh, I suppose the British people sort of um, you know, taking a little bit of the mick out of uh, European content, which is what my 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 history people have done for 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 years. But um, it was it was fun it was fun doing it. But it, there's there's also a, a kind of a dark. And the reason it's in the collection, there is a dark. Uh, undertone to all, to all of that, um, and a, and a warning, and a, uh, you know about uh, the misuse of of science, and it's um, I think and very interesting if you take contemporary issues and then uh, you kind of retrofit them back into a historical aspect, which is um, some somewhat of what the the uh, not intentionally, but I see now looking back at it and reading it again. That there, you know, you could bring that into the um, the present day uh, and change a few of the parameters, and you'd have you'd have a story that was plausible today in terms of internet and and the use of uh, information, which is what that story is about. Well, absolutely, I read it, and what was remarkable to me that here's a story that's convincingly set, beautifully wrought, set what eighteen hundreds, right? Yeah. yeah. I, I, and all I could think about, my mind, all the time, full was just full of, boy, this is last summer's healthcare debate. Down to the summertime part, <laughs> setting. I mean, down to the dates and stuff. Yeah. And I thought, you know, that the ability 
of to write something so thought-provoking was really remarkable that, you know, you let the reader make all the connections. And that's to inspire that kind of thought and as part of the reading experience where you're at once immersed in this kind of Victorian experiment and these Victorian politics, but yet reminded about today's politics was, was quite remarkable. Now, also, what I really liked about this was that... Um, Sikatarn is a, has you know many of the feel of a of a kind of a classic ghost story to it. This, however, reminded me of something like out of by by Arthur C. Clarke or maybe Arthur Conan Doyle. Yeah, um, actually, I think um, you're, you're right. Um, it, it's H.G. Wells. Okay. Was, was a was a big uh, um, uh, influence on, on me. I love I love his stories and. Um, I think if I if I was in mind of something, it's the kind of stories that he wrote, like um, the first Men in the Moon. I think is a great story of his, and it's about it's about um, some some uh, uh, wayward professor building a space rocket and going off to the moon. Um, and, and I it prompted me when I read that um, again more recently as part of my coming back to reading that um, you know it, if you read that it sounds a little bit crazy um, because uh, he's working from his point in time uh, when space travel hadn't happened. Um, I could write about space travel um, from my perspective with, with you know, the Apollo missions and the shuttle and all these wonderful things that have happened. I, but I, I could place it back in, uh, back in time in, in the 18th and 19th century but I could write it more convincing knowing what I know about space and space travel. And so um, that was a concept I thought was interesting. And I still would like to do that one day is, is do, a, do the space, space travel. But, but in the, the case of the rumor mill, it, it's about um, I could write more about the, the misuse of information, knowing what I know now and how governments behave um, at, towards their people. And then retrofit that back to to uh, um, a period in the past where people, you know, wouldn't necessarily know that. And my audience reading today will get it. They'll they'll understand it because because of what they what they know. And so it, it makes it a, a slightly more plausible story. At least I hope it makes it. Oh, slightly it seems more plausible. completely plausible. I, yeah. I I love the heck out of that story. Yeah. yeah. Now. Uh, it's also, as you say, rather humorous. You have some great characters in there. So I love the the father-in-law and, and the daughter. And the, you have some almost Dickensian naming going on in there as well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, names are obviously Dickens is the, 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 uh, the, the lead on that. But names are important, absolutely mm -hmm. important. And uh, I think once I think I struggle you know, with all of the, the places and all the people, uh, I spend a great deal of time getting the right the right names. Uh, once the name, once I've got the name, I can I can start. So I'm not somebody who can write a story and not have the name and just put cross 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 uh, says this and then and I'll think of the name later. It'll come. Uh, that's an absolute writer's block to me. I have to have the name in uh, in right from the very get go. Otherwise, nothing else flows. And so I, I guess what I'm saying is the name. Is the is the is the kind of the motherload through which all of their character stuff and and the landscape flows. So, naming is important, and it's good to have a good you know an interesting name. I like names. Um, I, I read a lot of uh, Annie Prue, 
and I, I love the names of, of the of the of the ranches and the people that she has uh, in those stories. And um, I just think it brings it brings it alive and it's a bit of it's 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 a bit of fun. So I do have a list in my Blackberry. I have another note where I uh, jot down any interesting names that I happen to see on shop fronts or in, in telephone books or uh, itineraries or programs or anybody's got an interesting name uh, it goes in there. And um, I frequently look through that and just think, oh, yeah, that's that's who I'm looking for. That's the person to, t- to take the story forward. Now, uh, what was the third story you wrote? So then I began to get into, <laughs> became harder. I, 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 I hit, it's uh, Hobbs's Lane, mm-hmm. number three, Hobbs's Lane. Uh, this I found very difficult. This is a difficult story to write, and I, uh, this is the when reality hits. So um, I don't know why I wrote it to this day. Um, the only thing I, I, I can think of is that I was trying to draw out this idea of how how could you make something completely ridiculous plausible given that i now had 20,000 words to do it in and and not any shorter so the tricks that i'd learned how could i really pull off um something uh and i'm i have to be honest with you i'm not saying that i i this is what happened i'm trying to retrofit this into what i was thinking because i have no idea there is no record of why i chose uh, um, a house with no windows. I can't, there was no moment where I'd said it has to be about a house with no windows. There was no, um, uh, that I'm aware of, um, story that was floating around or anything that, that would have given me the idea. And when people ask about why I chose that, I, I genuinely draw a blank and I can't remember the day that it, 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 it occurred. It's very early on in the story and I write my stories sequentially so it must have been early in the writing of the process that this idea occurred to me but um i all i can think of is that i was trying to set a challenge um and you say boy do you try and work you know try and explain that in twenty thousand words why you would have a house no windows um is possibly it but i i I genuinely don't really understand why I, i chose it you know, one thing that I like about all the stories in this book, there's a lot of variety in here. You really can't pin any one label on this collection. And you, you put it in one story, and the next story, that ain't it. You move it to the next story, that ain't it. Um, and, and all the stories have a kind of a sense, though, I think, of wonder. I guess that's what unites them. And in that sense, it's, it's like science fiction wonder, but not science that has none of the trappings of that. And so um, Three Hobbs Lane is, is a story that when you get to the, to the kernel of it, uh, it does, you just, it really knocks you. <laughs> you go, oh my God, yes, you do manage to make something that seems like impossible possible. Uh, so talk about creating that sense of wonder. And one of the things too that makes this, that makes that kind of sense possible is that against this kind of wild idea that you have, you have this gorgeously and beautifully evoked backdrop. Does this prose, landscape prose, uh, do you travel a lot? Does this landscape prose flow from your fingers of your Blackberry? <laughs> this seems uh, almost ridiculous. I, I, uh, I don't know. I, I feel um, not well equipped to, to write uh, about landscape or about people's thoughts and emotions uh, 
Well, you I, do both remarkably well. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know. I think that's very, I'm very fortunate if that's, if that's how it happens. I mean, my, my, the stories I w- were, was reading while I was writing all of these for pleasure were, were children's adventure stories written at the beginning of the century in the 19 sort of 20s and 30s. So um, Percy Westerman and, and uh, um, uh, people, people like that. Um, there is a childlike sense of wonder in all the stories. Yeah, and I, I am a wondrous... Um, I know, let's get my words right here, but I, I am full of wonder for, for what I see around me. I do, I do find the, the world a fascinating place and I find people fascinating. Um, uh, so I, I am constantly looking at things and thinking that's, that's just amazing, taking that in. Um, I have this kind of, I guess, this neo-academic background that makes me, you know, perhaps uh, think twice about things that I see and think, you know, well, how does that happen or how does that work or how does that rock happen to be above this other rock? How might that happen? What's the geology there? So I, I guess it's a coming together, a fortuitous coming together of, of those those things. The landscape, I love landscape. I love, I love uh, landscape. But to answer your question, I, I, I have done a, a fair deal of, of hiking in my, in my time. I used to, when I was doing my, my PhD with no money, um, there, there wasn't much else to do. I couldn't go and buy things. So I would, I would pack a few things in a bag and just go hiking. I was based in, in the Midlands of England, um, in, in, in Leicester and Nottingham. And so some beautiful parts of the landscape uh, around there, the, the Derbyshire Dales and uh, the hills around there. So I would go and walk around those on my own for, for a, you know, a day or two days um, and found that you know, just wonderful. But I haven't done it for a long, long time with, a, with, with my children still too young to, to do that um, at the moment. In fact, they've just been <laughs> rescued by their grandfather having got down a road and couldn't be bothered to walk back again. So... Um, but that will come. I'll look forward to that again. Uh, but I do have that memory mm-hmm. of of, uh, of that of just setting out into a landscape and and just seeing wonderful things around you. But I'm not um, another writer I like is is uh, Barry Lopez, and mm-hmm. I, I've read a lot of his his short stories and and some of his 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 longer stuff. But I would never. I'm not at anywhere near that kind at uh, that level of of understanding of uh, the flora the wildlife i don't know the names of most of the grasses the trees that i pass through i'm frustrated that i don't it annoys me that i i don't i think that's a, a damning uh, um, indictment on on where we're at in terms of understanding the landscape around us and i'm, I'm complicit in that uh, so i recognize that in the stories I have to get that right. So I do spend a bit of research time. In fact, probably the research that I do most where I, you know, actually if I do um, need to go on to, uh, to a library or go onto Google to find out some, it's usually about plants and animals. So what kind of tree would be in this, in this thing here? Because I don't know, and that's awful. But, you know, so I, I like to get, and you need to have that in the text that if you look at you know, travel writing, they, they, they write about, the trees uh, in terms of species and why they're there. And that's important to get that right. So it's another one of these details that I, I like to, to have in there. But this one is one that I don't know. So I have to go and look it up. So um, you arm yourself with these details and take and in your BlackBerry and another file and you're writing, OK, this is my tree. Yeah. Flora and fauna. Um, it's 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 um, you have a flora and fauna file. I do. I, oh, I, have, wow. a, I have a name, a, a names file and a flora and fauna and a and a, and a conversion thing. So I'm because I'm, I'm writing 
in a usually historically i need to know you know what what would what would that be in today's money and that that those kinds of things you know what's mm-hmm. a what's a cable and what's a you know in terms of length and and uh or a league you know how how far is a league <laughs> and I, I i forget i have a terrible a terrible memory and i think leagues are mentioned in every single story but i i always have to go and look it up and um so the, uh, but it's important to me to get those right mm-hmm. uh, those those little details right um, and um, and I actually I enjoy that bit of research. That's a little bit of the I guess the academic background. I, you know, I enjoy that uh, piece of research coming coming out. And you always find something else that you weren't looking for, and you think, oh, that's uh, that's a good word. I could put that in. That that's a, a useful thing. So um, I'm I'm writing at the moment writing something about um, uh, an island in in the Indian Ocean. So there's yeah complete fauna and stuff has to be uh, right for that and and. Uh, the names of people are different from from these English names largely, so uh, yeah, there's a lot of work that's gone into the to that. But I enjoy that side of it. I love the historical settings and, and I, of these stories. They're so wonderfully evoked, and it gives them kind of a. These feel like lost classics of some kind, and I guess that's has to do with some of your reading. Uh, so uh, I guess what which one came next after? Um, After at this point, lane. I did send them to to a. Uh, I thought at this point I got three mm-hmm. now. Um, in fact, I hadn't actually finished Hobbes's Lane, and I I thought I'll send this around and see if anybody's interested in it. And I I found a a website that had uh, it's an American website, and it had a list of I think twenty or thirty publishers of short. I think gothicy. I think was what I. I had typed into the search Mm -hmm. Um, and I picked five of them um, and uh, for no reason they had nice names or they uh, one one was in England so I thought that wouldn't that would help Um, there were most of them I think were American and I sent off um, the the kind of a very short summary of what they were to these five people and um, two came back one one guy an american guy he was in barcelona and he said these sound really interesting could you send them to me i'm in barcelona so i sent them to and one was was rosalie parker who who from tartarus who, who ended up publishing it and uh, i never heard back from the guy from barcelona rose rose rosalie wrote back and said um these are really really interesting but you know the words the effect was you know nobody reads stories of this length are you are you are you crazy? I mean, you know, short stories, yes. Yeah, novels, absolutely. But nobody reads these kind of um, the, uh, novellas or novelettes or whatever you call them. And I wrote back, I thought I have two two options here. I can either get kind of upset and yes, but, you know, the, the reason for this is because I want them. Or I can just say, listen, Rosie, tell me about it, which is what I did. I said, I didn't want to write them either. You know, they, they just came. That's the length they are. I'm, I, I'm, you know, I absolutely understand it. And she said, "Well, okay, send me, send me a couple. Send me, send me, send me what, what you've got." So I had two finished ones, and then I had to really quickly finish Hobbes's Lane. So I worked very hard to get that off, and I sent, I sent them off to her. And um, she came back and said, "Actually, these, these are good. You know, these are. I'd like to do this, um, but um, I need, I need uh, probably, uh, you know, two more." Uh, oh gosh! I mean, I, I didn't have any ideas. Um, and I'd str- as I said, I'd struggle with Hobbes's Lane. It wasn't so much fun anymore. <laughs> um, and I thought, oh, gosh. So um, so I had now been set the goal for the first time of write two, two of these stories. So 
um, that changed the dynamic a little bit, I think, for the better, actually, because because now I knew I had to, to do something. But it put a bit of pressure on because I didn't want to spoil what I had achieved by mm-hmm. just enjoying myself. Um, so so the next one was, was Loop Guru. Mm. Uh, and again, I drew back from... Um, Again, it's something that I had always wanted to write, right back from, from uh, I guess, a teenager when I had tried to write the stories. We lived in the countryside for a little bit and used to walk around the, the fields with the sheep and everything. And I thought, yeah, that would be a... There's something really visceral, I think, in the human condition about a mon- uh, a, an animal, a wild animal being out there somewhere. I think that's that's really goes back again, archaeologically, I think, back to our you know, huddling around the fire, making stone tools, knowing that there's a saber-toothed lion or a mammoth or whatever that could be could be out there somewhere. And I think we brought that with us, that lodges somewhere deep in our psyche still. And from time to time, there's stories in England about, you know, wild cats on Dartmoor or... Oh, yeah, the black cats and, yeah. the, and, the, and the black dogs. That's right. right? And, the, um, and then, of course, you've got the classic uh, Conan Doyle and, and um, Hound yeah, of the, the Hound of the Baskervilles, which is, you know, just, just the zenith of that. So I thought I would... Um, I'd try and do something around that. And that's... that's um, I had started to write something very, very sort of badly when I was 17 or 18, and it, it hadn't hadn't gone anywhere so I started uh, uh, right from the right from the get-go and I, I just knew that this story had to be a, a Iberian in, in in a French Iberian border Basque kind of land somewhere down there uh, that was that was the very rooted in that area because it was, was isolated just looking and, that stuff up I'm just going where is this place <laughs> Um, and uh, you know it just lends itself, I think, beautifully mm. to that to that thing because there are large areas that that are that are uninhabited, and the the the, uh, the the people down there. Not that I've visited that area at all, I haven't, but I've I've read a lot of, of people who have, and they seem to be a very interesting t- type of people in there. There's that, that there's that wonderful sort of um, suspicion of strangers that they have, and the, and the uh, how the close bond that they form. Um, all out of necessity of where they're working in the landscape and tied very closely to the landscape. So I just thought that would be a terrific place to to set that. Um, I knew I wanted to have uh, some kind of wild animal on, on, on the on the loose from from the start. Um, and then again, it's the same thing. I needed to find the people that were going to drive that through for me and take that take that through. And uh, the 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 slight change with this story is that I. I I deliberately tried to write uh, each of the stories from a, uh, each of the chapters from a perspective of one of the characters in mm-hmm. it because I, I knew there were going to be a lot of characters and I, I didn't have the technical expertise to, to weave that all in uh, as, as, a, as a, you know, really, really good writers would do. So I, I thought, you know, the way to do this is, is, is give chapter perspectives on, on, on this. And, um, Defrago is is a nod. Um, the character Defrago is, I, I suppose, is the uh, the kind of hero. If there is a hero, there isn't really a hero in it, but um, is a is a nod to 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 Blackwood, who's my you know I guess my ultimate sort of hero in this. Who Algernon Blackwood? Yeah, there's yeah. A, there's a real feel for these. It reminds me of uh, the Willows and yeah. uh, uh, the. Uh, uh, the Wendigo. The Wendigo, and That's... I think I think the Wendigo has Defrago is a character in the Wendigo, mm-hmm. and then the name is a character from from Wendigo, and I, you know, I'm I meant to change it at some point, and I just thought no, that's this guy is that's who it is. He fits he fits really nicely in there. 
And yes, uh, Algernon Blackwood is absolutely the the kind of um, uh, the the mark that I would say you know um, marks the high water of this this kind of writing because he he does precisely this kind of stuff. If you read The Willows, nothing much happens, but there is a deep you know tense energy that runs through that. And and if I could get capture that, I, w- I would be really chuffed, as we say in England. It's like getting electrocuted continuously for 60 pages. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's just terrific. It's just brilliant. And so uh, I thought I, um, I I thought we'd do that. And, and working, change, working with uh, the character perspectives in the chapters changed the dynamics slightly because it made it more, um, slightly more complicated because I would get into a character, um, uh, you know, really quite profoundly and then um when i would start on the next one the story would have changed slightly because of what how this character had developed and the relationships all driven again by the almost sort of zero planning that goes on and just writing on on a, on a regular cycle um but um i i you know i, I like the way it, it turned out i wanted to have that it to be a bit more uh um gory if that's the right word uh, than than the others, I wanted it to have a bit more of a visceral feel to it, but um, it's also beautifully sweet. I mean, I, I I read it and I you know I thought it was just had such a great balance of emotions in it. I I thought it was just phenomenally well done, but arguably to my mind the best uh, story that features La Lugaru I've ever read. Really, <laughs> oh, that's, thank you. I, I when I I in terms of the the sweetness i think you're absolutely right but there is um for the people uh, who live in those landscapes and I, i'm not an anthropologist or anything but i've read a huge amount on on anthropology for my archaeological work and um i'm not a, a huge travel f- writing fan but i've read i've read some bits of that chapwin and people like that who i who i um who express for me something which i imagine to be true uh, and i've tried to convey which is this this wonderful um relationship between humans and the landscape in which they they live and i guess as an archaeologist that's what i've been doing i'm very much uh from the background that the the environment was profoundly important in how humans evolved and particularly the humans that i looked at which lived at the end of the ice age so these guys would have had a folk memory of a of a wall of ice four kilometers high um uh, across across england and reindeer running in herds um but then the environment they found themselves now was was forested and uh and wet and moist and tons of uh birch and stuff completely different but they would have remembered that people would have told them stories about the ice and stuff and I felt when I was studying archaeology that they would they would react to that, and the only thing that we really have is their stone tools. But their stone tools begin to reflect these changes. So, just and this is a bit of an aside, but it's interesting. Um, well, it informs your stories. I can see <laughs> you when you when you are hunting, uh, you know, herds of reindeer which are in the open landscape. You you can uh, they're predictable, so you know where they are, and so you build a camp, and every year they come through there, and, and you gear up, you tool up, and you uh, go on a big um, hunting kind of kill and take everything back. When all of a sudden that that landscape is now covered in trees, those animals are a deer and the reindeer move away, and you've got different types of deer. 
but they're all scattered around the thing and you don't have the luxury of being um, able to uh, yeah, anticipate where they're going to be. You have to be able to react when you might find one. And the weapons that they use in the stone tools that they use ref change to reflect that. So instead of having big points that you just stab in, they develop what's called in the aeronautics industry redundancy. So you would have multiple barbed pieces so that if one breaks, fails, there's another three or four to make the kill because you cannot miss this animal because you don't know when you're going to see it again. And this is, to me, is is the human culture changing because the landscape has changed and this re relation. So coming back to our to our point, um, I'm I'm fascinated and charmed at the 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 relationship uh, between people who live very close to the land. And they are. It is a brutal life in many cases, but it is also, as you, your word, a charming uh, life. They have wonderful understanding and knowledge uh, of of their world. And so yes, I try to capture. The brutality of life, the the, the facts that, that that we would never under comprehend are, but which these people uh, take as day to day uh, granted, but also the the tenderness that they have not only towards one another but towards the landscape too. So I'm I'm really delighted that that's come across because that is something that I th I think is important. Now, one thing I love about this story is the just the the level of storytelling and stories within stories, and I absolutely love. Let me see if I can say this right. Uh, Florent Hortholery, <laughs> and I was hoping that you're going to bring him back because he seems like a guy. There, he might have a lot. There might be a lot of good stories with Florent. Yeah, I mean, Florent is is um, a construction, and probably the only character that I that 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 I write about that I have a real purpose behind. Um, and what it is is. Um, the, uh, my take on what a new detective, the new detective story might look like. And um, again, I'm not a I'm not a literary person, so I, I don't know the ins and outs of it. But, you know, we all know that there are two people in every detective story. You have the, the, the main guy and the sidekick. So if we take Sherlock Holmes and, and um, the doctor... Uh, who, who sits with... So what I what I thought was, if you could do, if you could separate... Uh, how could, what would it happen if you separated your your um, incisively minded detective character in time and space and had your kind of buffoon type um, sidekick in the modern day? What would that look like? So that was what I was trying to do at the beginning of, the, of this. So it, that's uh, it was, really a phenomenal. That's a really interesting idea. I yeah, like and that. That, I thought you could get some really interesting. And yes, you're absolutely right to say that that I would in my mind, I, I'd like to, to see this guy come back again and do other things, because what what you have is the student um, uh, postgraduate student who's studying uh, this person uh, in the modern day. And you can have some really interesting discussions across the the ages through these two people. So by by looking at the letters, and I, that's something I've done a lot of of, of trying to reconstruct uh, archaeological excavations, for instance, from field notebooks, where you're looking at a person's um, thoughts in not in the way that a diary is written. A diary is written, I think, probably um, perhaps a bit, a bit nastily, but is designed to be read by somebody in the future. But field notebooks, um, yes, they're designed to be read, but there's nothing, there's no pretense about that. They just say, this is how I saw it. And I want you to understand this in the past, that this is this is what we saw. This is how it looked. And this is what I did next. So they're intentionally um, detailed stuff. Not so that you don't get this overlay of what I would like you to think about me, which you might get in diaries. So um, 
and I've done a lot of that and, and it's been helpful. I've, I've reconstructed excavations from, you know, sort of 20, 30 years previously where people have, uh, have died and they're no longer around to ask. And it's been an interesting, I found it a fascinating process. So I thought you could do this really nicely. You can have, you do, you can have these discussions. I know this from, 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 from um, personal experience. I could sit back and think, uh, what were you thinking, John White? You know, when you when you did this, and I know I know you. The red ink means you know you've had a you're at home because you don't take your red fountain pen onto site. So you're back in the pub, but I know you would have had a couple of beers. So um, I know you might be you know kind of um, in a good mood about this. So I need to tone down what you're saying. And you have the and he might he might as well be in the room with you when you have these discussions. So I think it's not really that. And I think you could, you may have missed. And, and so you can have these discussions. So I just thought well, it would be really interesting to have these discussions between, let's say, Sherlock Holmes and Watson. But Watson was a, a PhD student now. And uh, Holmes is this person making the observations. And the interesting thing about this is, you know, Holmes is um, method. Is this the, the, the method of, you know, facts, facts, unallied facts. Um, so why do you have to have Watson... Uh, in the room at the same time if it's all about facts then the facts can be interpreted by Watson as a PhD student years later providing they've been recorded properly and that's why uh, Luke Guru has a, has a great deal of, about notebooks and, and how notebooks are formed in fact a lot of a lot of the stories deal with notebooks and mm -hmm. how they are um, you know the, the the fundamental record of something that happened so that was my intention I, I don't think I actually pulled it off as well as 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 one as I might have hoped but there is a modern person there uh, who's who's trying to interpret notebooks left by Florent. And um, there's a lot of stuff about how those notebooks came about. That's all uh, kind of based on my, you know, oh, it, that happens. You know, that's that's true. So um, so so you're right. Um, I, he, I think he would come back. I mean, I, I will try and see if he can we can uh, have another story with him in it. Now, the visions of Lazaro. The, the work that finishes the book is the uh, only one, I think, in there that's overtly of some kind of a genre. I mean, you know, it, it gets there. But it gets there, I mean, in such a manner that at first it feels like I'm reading, again, uh, just, just this really mysterious and compelling history, a story of, uh, of a prophet and a story of a of an outpost in the middle of some godforsaken desert. Talk of, did you, how much of this world that you create in this story did you have in your mind before you started typing it into your Blackberry? And I can't even believe that you could <laughs> compose such a thing. Um, the, the landscape f for that, the, the, um, the Lanura Roja. So what a called. wonderful word. That, that, <laughs> it's so evocative. Um, it, I think really it was because I was going through landscapes. I, we've had we had the Scots West Coast. We'd had a sort of city in London. We'd had the beautiful English Midlands. We'd had the sort of the the Central European area, and I felt the need for something different. I couldn't. I didn't want to write about the same kind of area. So I picked something that was as as completely different from those landscapes as as could possibly be, um, effectively a, a, a desert. And um, again, it was a, it was the last story written. I I um, I I don't know for sure where it came from, but I know at the time 
I or near to it, I had read, uh, reread a John Wyndham story, and I. You asked me what the first story book I read. I think the first book. Now I'm thinking about it that I that I kind of bought and read was a John Wyndham book, mm-hmm. uh, probably the Midwich Cuckoos or one of his short stories. I got a feeling they were in our kind of sick bay, mm-hmm. and when you had absolutely nothing else to do, you couldn't play rugby, you couldn't play football, you couldn't do anything else. You were stuck there. You resorted to reading. <laughs> <laughs> And that was the, the thing. Anyway, I had read one, and I can't remember the name. I was thinking earlier on. Uh, the I want, I could. I wanted to call it Chroniclism, but I'm. Not, I've got a feeling it. I may be misleading people into. There's a story he writes about, and it's a. Be- it's a delicious um, uh, situation he gets. Uh, a guy on one planet, professor kind of equivalent on one planet, um, not our own, invents a, a form of um, uh, exchange. Um, and he exchanges himself with somebody from our planet, and that's great. And uh, the only problem is, is the person he exchanges from our planet is a cripple and a man in great deal of pain and a great deal of dissatisfaction with his life, who is sucked away from that life and now ends up on the other planet, and discovers the other planet. He's uh, in. Uh, he's a fit and healthy person and and lovely. So obviously he doesn't want to go back. And there is this wonderful, uh, I think, wonderful uh, kind of set that this guy, John Wyndham, sets up because they then begin to have that. I'm not going to spoil it for people. I really recommend people to read it. But uh, they then have this kind of tussle about who's going to get the the, uh, the cripple's body and they go in. So I'd read that. Uh, and I think somewhere in the back of my mind recently, I'd read that recently when I started writing it, in the back of my mind was this idea of um, exchange and Again, I'm retro. I'm fitting retro ideology into this. I'm thinking what I was, uh, what my subconscious was was saying was that was really interesting with a physical exchange, physical exchange of people. What would happen if you had um, a, a kind of exchange deficit in some kind of intellectual way, in, in terms of the intellectual capacity? So, what would happen instead of a broken body uh, transferring between uh, different uh, places you had uh, a somewhat compromised mind in a body but being transferred and what would that mind make of of this um, transition and how would that happen so while I at one level I really wanted to just say I want to draw out this John Wyndham story because I think in it he it's a short it is a short story and he only has I could just see huge potential in this, in what emerges. And again, I'm not going to say what happens. And I was really inclined to do that. Um, but actually what emerged in me by the time it had gone through my brain and come out into the Blackberry was was this different, slightly different take on it, which is, is um, yeah, what would the mind think of, of moving backwards and forwards um, between between two different places that were, were different? Um, so so that was the idea. I'm I'm... People who read it, I'm I'm aware that it's um, a complicated uh, story. Well, that's what makes <laughs> it so enjoyable for me, at least. I, I mean, the the, and I think all of your stories are are pretty complicated, and you have a you have a very interesting sense of narratives, nested narratives, reflective narratives, narratives with like spider webs. I mean, um, your your narratives are not like. 
the kind of ethernet cable that goes from one computer to the next to the next. It's like there's a hub that goes to all of them at once. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's, I mean, and it, it, to some extent, that's driven by the, the, the content of the story, which mm -hmm. is which is about these, I guess, parallel universes, uh, which is which is what's going on, going on there. But I was, again, I was trying really hard to make it as realistic as possible and and it so it feels real i mean it like it feels so real that it takes a while to twig to the to the genre content and that's what's what again what amazes me you have you give us these names and dates and events and again we're tempted well, wait 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 i'm gonna where's where's my where's where can i get these notebooks <laughs> so uh, yeah i was i i I'm, and i was that's what I was trying to do. That's mm. what I was trying to do. And, and um, there's a lot of complexity in there. Um, but again, I was just following a, a logical thought process with it, which is if, um, you know, you don't need, there's a tendency to think that, that um, uh, areas, uh, stories that involve movement between planets or whatever are obviously going to have some cataclysmic um uh, um, event happen. Mm -hmm. uh, the people, the, the 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 people or organisms on the other planet are going to be hideous and tent many tentacled, many headed animals. Um, but 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 what in reality um, might it be is that the, these are just organisms that have. Uh, and what if they were human to start off with, and have just evolved? Going coming back to my archaeological um, background, in ways. Um, under the conditions of that planet so the, the planet or the, the the space in which the the um uh, lanura roja exists is um is uh n not um hugely distant from what we've got now that's the whole point it it, it could exist anywhere just outside our solar system um and all that's happened in, in, in that very basically is that, that we've, in a previous um, kind of iteration of our running of the tape of life, have, have cocked it up, as we very nearly have done on several occasions. In this case, around about the 60s or 70s, we cocked it up. And what would have happened? Well, we would have tried you know, to, to um, save the, the species in some way or other. What technology did we have? We had, we had Saturn five rockets at that time and and the apollo space mission was all we had had um so you know there are references to that so the fivers who are the the equivalent of the sort of 49ers i guess in, in california they're called fivers because of saturn five rocket and uh, so we launch off rockets um left right and center and who does that uh, it would have been under um a little after this cataclysm on our own planet because these things take time to to happen um, in my story is Carter, and that's why the capital of that planet is called Carter, and and one of the big provincial towns is Mueller, and and Mueller is was the head director of NASA at the time of the space program, um, and then what's happened is these uh, humans have I thought well what would happen if they were on if they had a little less gravity than we did, um, and well they I guess I don't know I'm not a, a, a an anthropologist or an anatomist but I guess less stress on the bones and everything would allow you to to grow a bit bigger I, I guess taller you know the long bones would be supported so that that could happen um and I'm sure there are other things that would happen so these people were getting were just humans who just got a bit bigger um but then you deliver into that you insert into that uh, world 
um, a damaged mind, or not a damaged mind, but a man, a man who is thinking certain in a certain way. And then you think, well, now go figure. What do you make of that? You know, these are, they're human, but they're big. They're giants. Um, um, and then you take him back again to our, to our world, and you say, well, what would he say? How would he how would he um, interpret all of that? Um, and I was just playing through this this idea, literally day by day, thinking, okay, he goes back. So what's he going to say? Well, he's going to say it was extraordinary. There's there, these huge people, this big table, and. As I wrote it, uh, I became aware that what I was doing was, in my mind, was actually fairly simple, fairly logical. Uh, but, but what was appearing before me on in on the BlackBerry, if you like, and the, was um, extraordinary. And I could see that this would people would say this is absolutely bizarre uh, that what's going on. But in my mind, not really. I mean, if you're um, so. I'm I'm really proud of it. It's of the stories that I wrote. It's the one that that, that I'm 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 the most proud of. But um, I I understand. You know, I showed it to my wife. She was like looking at me like, "What are you doing? <laughs> what are you trying to?" You know. Um, but you know, ultimately, when I kind of talk to her about it, she understands, it and I think she you know, says it's it's um uh, you know an interesting story. So I I I love it for its for its uh, intellectual complexity, um, and um I'm I'm. You know, if I had my time again, maybe I would I would try and throw a few more clues in there so that that uh, you know, I think perhaps I could have made it e easier for some people to, to kind of get what I'm saying, because I, I understand that, that it, it may be difficult. But if you just read it as a as a story, I hope it's an extraordinary story and an extraordinary tale at that level. And that I'll be very delighted for that to have, to have happened. Well, that's one of the things I think that um, you talked about children's classics, you know, your reading of that. That's all these kind of have that feeling of just being a great yarn, you know, yeah. ripping, ripping yarns. You, you, you do you, it. You said it. That's exactly what I was aiming for is something you could really get your teeth into a really good yarn. Now, uh, you've got all these things on the Blackberry. You bring them home and download them and just put them one after another on the computer. That's it. That's it. A, it, it uh, the the note the system I have is um, they they come up as as little files so I cut and paste them into a, into a you know a word document, um, and um, and then just format them uh, and that's where uh, editing takes place. Uh, I've I've done a lot of editing along the way because I'll I because I have this kind of big break in my day where I'm talking about uh, other things, thinking about other things. I often have to remind myself what where we are in the story. So I will reread the, the 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 you know the last you know um, five hundred six hundred words and change them as I go along. So I I, I think probably um, every sentence has been read and reread by me um, you know tens of times, but without me really knowing it. But the first big edit happens when they uh, at once a week I, I I put what's written on the BlackBerry into the file, and and that takes shape and then. Um, when the story's done, I'll then um, go through and, and give it a, a, an edit from start to finish, um, and that's that's pretty much that's pretty much it. Now, are there any stories we haven't seen? No, there there are not, and that's that's a, a, a commentary on. I think I said you know um, the editor at, at Tartarus was encouraging to me by by setting me this goal to write the two, which I probably wouldn't have written. Um, you know, at least that quickly, um, had she not have done that. So I'm, I'm a deadline kind of guy. I like to, I like the sound as they wish past, but I, 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 you know, I need that, that impetus. 
Um, but the other reason is 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 that I've I've been working on something else. So I don't know whether whether um, you know if I hadn't had this other idea in my mind, I, I would have written more stories. But certainly. Um, you know, Florent would come back again, I think, in something and uh, oh, have a well, few yeah. ideas there. <laughs> now, uh, we have to thank Rosie over at Tartarus yeah. Press. Now, uh, have they have they seen your novel yet? That's what you're working on, correct? Now, and it must be a different adventure for you to write a novel on your BlackBerry. Um, uh, well, first of all, no, it's not finished. It's been nearly finished, nearly finished. Um, and uh, it's a different, uh, I think, a different um, take on on this i mean for a start it's um or my intention was that this was more of a um a story for children mm-hmm. um but not y- young children and my children are five and three and i'm hoping by the time if this ever sees the light of print or whatever they'll be you know older than that but my intention was to write something for them as i said i i, I had been reading loads of children's stories written in the 19 sort of 20s and 30s where i think people had much higher expectations of what children could could absorb and take mm-hmm. in um so they are written pretty much uncompromisingly in in adult english um with very little compromise to to what a child may be able to take in and the concepts uh, uh, in the same sense are also fairly adult in nature it's just that there isn't a lot of uh, landscape description there's a lot of dialogue there's there's not a lot of what people were thinking that's all been sort of stripped out um so in my view, um, my way of thinking, that's pretty much what I'm writing, the style I'm writing anyway, mm-hmm. uh, is in that, in that era, um, that, that, that way of writing. So um, at the time, my children were reading a lot of stories about um, dragons and things like that. And I thought, hey, wouldn't it be good to use what I do? So this is the, the incremental um, way of taking something that's preposterous and making it uh, if you draw it out long enough I thought gosh dragon that's a pretty big one I'm going to need more than 20,000 words to make that sound um, plausible so um, so what what we have is a, is a story about um, dragons um, but um, written in a very adult way and the people I've shown to said yeah no child will understand this um, but but um and using, I think, drawing upon my my uh, experience as a as a, in a sense an evolutionary archaeologist, but somebody who has a little in, a little in interest in paleontology too. Um, so if if die if if um, dragons existed, um, how would you find out about them, and how would they be um, discovered, revealed bit by bit, and what would they look like? So I've I've made some you know pretty radical. Um, changes to dragon law and what you can and cannot do with a dragon and where they where they come from and I've tied them I brought them back into the firmament of of science so and the the story is about um, essentially um, two uh, contrasting views the scientific view and the 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 in this case a religious view but a, a view of um, a native religion um, what so those two things are they always in um, uh, are they always in um, confrontation uh, are they always is one right and one not now I firmly from a scientific background but I'm playing around with the idea of of uh, what would you lose if you if you refuse to believe scientific evidence that science dragons existed might you miss something and 
uh, as I said, everything is has already happened. Nothing I can think of, isn't it? So the, the site, the platypus, you know, it should not exist. It's it's completely it's a completely ridiculous monster that absolutely. nobody could invent. And they didn't believe it until until very very recently. So that on the science side, and then that on on, on the kind of um, uh, the kind of I guess religion is probably the wrong word, but the religious side is is you know they allow um, particularly the native religions that I'm talking about not the organized Western religions, um, allow f- for these things. That's natural, that, 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 that things that exist outside of um, science, you know, exist and play a fundamental part in the lives of these people. And it's part of their charm, as you said, and it's part of their, their, the way they understand the world. So what would happen if you, had one, if you brought both of those things together in one person and... Um, what I have as the character of this is a young boy who's a, a, a native of the Wheatday Islands. Again, don't look for it. it. It doesn't exist. But really curiously, interestingly, I spent a long time locating this and I find I'm very comfortable with where it's at. And then again, my children reading, we started reading them um, uh, Gulliver's Travels. And I discover at the front of Gulliver's Travels, there's a map and Lilliput is smack bang where I've placed the weekday islands. So, um, again, you can't make anything up these days. <laughs> You're in good company. <laughs> <laughs> so it's about a it's about a native weekday islander. Uh, and it's about uh, a lot of the stuff that will, will be familiar. It's about um, uh, the British um, coming to um, colonize this this island as a trading post. But there's a twist on that, too. It's not really trading. They it's actually white slavery they're engaged they're engaged in shipping out uh, well, the detritus like <laughs> of of london uh, over into into these islands and then making them grow coffee and tea and stuff and then sending it back um so that gives me a, a nice big uh, pool of uh, deviant human beings to play with although i think actually i've been very restrained and not um using too much of them but bringing with them um science uh, and an understanding of a new area so they're trying to understand these islands and and make a natural history of it and on the other side the indigenous population two two of them uh, two groups um who hate each other obviously they're in constant warfare with with uh, each other and have been since time immemorial and then this this is uh, disrupted by the arrival of the colonials um but what happens to them and this this one boy sits between the two and and he becomes um uh, friends with 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 um uh, why, the, the sort of doctor of the, of the of the settlement so he learns um he learns science and he actually comes to london and very nearly meets linnaeus at the time he didn't quite work out on that um but but certainly is trying now to make sense of what he um knows and believes um and the scientific uh, part of that and so he's putting that stew together which would all be fine and dandy if he wasn't uh, instrumental to the life cycle of this very curious beast that bit by bit is revealed in, in the book. So um, maybe I've put too much effort into it and too much thought, but but um, uh, and I haven't seen it from start to finish because, uh, um, you know, I haven't got to that point yet. But um, uh, yeah, it, it's it's an interesting story, but it, it's very much it's similar to this. It's based the the, the Uber, the Ur text in this case is not a notebook. It's a natural history that, that somebody's written. So we have this natural history the first edition of which has a very curious animal in it and the question is why did the animal uh, not why is the animal not there in addition to why did it get taken out 
This sounds fabulous. Has is uh, Tartarus going to be publishing it? I I haven't got to that point that uh, I'll finish it and then then we'll see what what uh you know who's who's in, if anybody's interested in it. So well, I'll. I'll um... I'm quite certain somebody's going to be very <laughs> interested in it. I've been speaking with Michael Rainier. His new book is Five Degrees of Latitude. Thank you for joining me, Michael. It's been a pleasure, Rick. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.